Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. Some Americans increasingly view our largest technology companies with suspicion. Google exercises too much control over information. Facebook and Twitter are silencing conservatives, and Amazon is crowding out competitors, we are told. Some in Congress have responded to these worries with proposals to rein in these tech giants, break them up, or punish them for their politics. But is the pessimism warranted? And what unintended consequences might result from the proposed solutions coming out of Washington? I'll be discussing these questions with Mark Jameson. Mark is the director and Gunter Professor of the Public Utility Research Center at the University of Florida's Warrington College of Business and a visiting scholar at AEI. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Let me see if I understand the critique of America's big technology companies, which are the biggest uh, biggest companies in America and, 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 and the world. Is the argument that the reason... Amazon, and Facebook, and Google, and Microsoft, uh, that they, and Apple, that they are big and getting bigger is even though they may have been these fantastic, innovative upstarts at some point in the past, now their success is due to their sort of monopolistic dominance and unfair business practices that also are bad for consumers. Is that is that sort of the argument currently? That's the basic argument that you hear from people that want to go on the attack against the companies. The other thing they will often add is that these companies are bad for democracy, that somehow the things that they do make it hard for governments to be run by the people that they govern. I think another complaint is that these big tech companies are biasing search results or squelching conservative speech on social media. But how is antitrust supposed to solve all these problems? It seems like a lot to ask of this particular policy tool. I think you're exactly right. And I would also argue that um, these aren't necessarily correct problems. So, and, and you wonder if people really believe what they're saying. Because if antitrust could solve all these problems that they perceive, then what we would see would be the Department of Justice in the US, the Federal Trade Commission in the US, using antitrust to correct, to change uh, what these companies do. But that's not what we're seeing. What we're seeing instead is a lot of efforts to change the laws so that we can use these agencies to do something that intellectually has very little to do with antitrust. So people are hoping that they can attack these companies, remake them, reshape them, and have them do less than they do today. And I think the critics would argue uh, the reason they need to, uh, to change laws is because antitrust, as it's currently conceived, isn't working. That antitrust used to mean one thing, and then starting, I guess, in the late 70s, it started meaning a different thing. And that different thing uh, renders uh, 
regulators sort of helpless to solve these problems. So what if we could just take a minute or two and and just sort of give me how antitrust has sort of changed from like the immediate post-war period to way it is now, which some people find to be um, ineffective. Sure. So when we first started antitrust, if you look at the political rhetoric, it's the political rhetoric you will see on any particular issue that there were evil entities in the world and our political heroes are going to correct that. So that's the, that's the rhetoric under which the laws were written. Antitrust then was given a lot of energy by, uh, by Brandeis. Um, he became the, the kind of force behind it. Brandeis had won a bias against anything large. And, and he, his bias on anything large was also against large government because he thought anything large was too big for an intelligent person to be able to run effectively. So he thought that businesses and government should be kept small so that they could indeed be managed. So what, what era, what era, where we, what are we talking about? So this is when? Oh, this would be back, um, oh, I'd have to look up the exact years, but probably 1920s, 1930s. Right, so we're talking, the, uh, we're talking sort of the pre-war, pre-war era. Um, yes. That sort of set in uh, what antitrust was for some decades. Right. And then as it became a much more of a, a professional job, you saw the Department of Justice starting to struggle with this idea that all anything big is bad. They, they started seeing that there's some pretty weak foundations here. And that's there when what people call the Chicago School, this is when they stepped in and said, well, if you're going to have antitrust, it really should be about consumers. And this is what we call the consumer welfare standard, which over time became adopted. And it's the basic idea that if you're going to, as a government, take on a merger, attack a merger, say it shouldn't be allowed, or to take on a particular business practice, your focus should be on does the merger, does the business practice harm consumers? Because after all, that's what an economy is about. Going clear back to Adam Smith, that's what he wrote about. It's all about the consumer. Today, we see people who'd really like to go back to the idea that big is bad. They want to kind of loosen the intellectual standards upon which we've built our antitrust policies for a number of decades now. So is the critique that the consumer welfare standard is too narrow? If a company can't challenge Google, then consumers are missing out on what that company would produce. Are they saying the consumer welfare standard needs to be broadened? Or do they think it doesn't even work on its own terms? It's primarily argument that it is too narrow. Uh, so you'll see people arguing that we should be protecting competition, whatever that means, or we should be protecting competitors. We know what that means, and we know that that can take us down the road that Europe is on, and where you're protecting companies that aren't serving customers very well. Um, some will even go so far as to argue that we're not protecting consumers on, in other markets. They think there are cascading effects. The, but any of that, to the extent that it benefits consumers, can be captured in today's laws. What you see in the research that people do to argue that at today's antitrust is failing us are studies that, would, that tend to try to show that companies today are bigger than they used to be and that that is a failing of antitrust. But that's a tautological argument. It's arguing that 
Well, since we now have bigger companies, we should, that means antitrust has failed and therefore antitrust should attack big companies. They've simply gone in a circle. They've not shown the customers are harmed. They're simply showing that the standard they would like to have, big is bad, is not being addressed under current laws, which is exactly right. Well, certainly there must be some people trying to show harms, whether it's suppression of speech, social media addiction, or undermining democracy. So is there a search for a new set of harms that would justify either changing laws or changing our approach to antitrust? I think that's fair, that especially on the more conservative side, people's concerns are about kind of their speech being treated unfairly, being treated with different standards than their intellectual, their political rivals. So certainly there are people that are looking for that, but that is not an antitrust issue. I would be very, I'd be hard pressed to try to understand how changing a company, breaking up a company, changing its business practices, its normal business practices would result in more conservative speech rising to the top than we have today. There may be an issue in what is edited or not edited on the social media platforms, but changing the market structure is not going to change that, in my opinion. So to some extent, is this sort of a solution in search of an appropriate problem? I think there's some of that. Uh, but I, I do believe that the people who have latched on to the solution is to break up and control companies really do believe that that is a good end in and of itself. So when you take a look at everything that is, is going on in the information technology industries, starting clear back with, with net neutrality, the wanting to declare the internet service providers and some of the content providers to be public utilities or common carriers. And then you see what people are saying and trying to do in antitrust and what they would like to do with Section 230, which is about the liability for content moderation. It's trying to create a neutral stack, a stack of services, a stack of technologies that then bring a service to market that does not use any of the intelligence or the information that could be brought to bear to make the services good. That means that they come under political or government control rather than the control of consumers. It seems to me that there are people who truly believe that that's the kind of world we want to have. Some people look at Google and say, everybody I know uses Google search. 80 or 90% of all searches are done via Google. You can't even imagine somebody getting venture capital financing to directly challenge Google. They're dominating the market. How could that not be a case for government action? All right, so there are two things there. One is that if you look at the research on how do consumers view the, I'll call it the, excuse me, the market for search. It's not really a market, that's, that's a little bit more complicated, but let's call it that for simplicity. There are other companies involved, Microsoft, for example, Yahoo, for example, and a few other small ones. And if you look at how consumers view Google versus the rivals, the consumers rank Google much higher in terms of satisfaction than they do the rivals. And so this really is consumer choice. That is something that I think is, is lost on a lot of people when they talk about how big Facebook is or how big Amazon is. I think it's important to understand that none of these companies 
did anything to get this large except produce services that a lot of consumers want. Amazon is as big as it is because you and I order products from it rather than ordering them from Walmart or someplace else. Google is as large as it is because you and I use Google instead of perhaps Bing or Yahoo, although we might use those from time to time just to see if we like the results better. Facebook is as large as it is because 2 billion people in the world said, I want to be on Facebook. None of these companies had any coercive ability to get this large other than do something really, really well. The other thing to keep in mind in these kinds of markets, we don't really want someone to be another Google. It might be nice for someone to be another Google, but what we really want is someone to create the next ecosystem, the next generation of products. It's competition for the next market, which is why we see Google, Facebook, Apple, Amazon investing heavily in things like artificial intelligence, investing heavily in things like um, virtual reality and augmented virtual reality, quantum computing. They're searching for what's going to happen next. And that's where the real competition is, not to duplicate something someone else has already done. That, that is indeed hard to, to collect capital for. Where the real excitement is, is what's going to replace these particular companies' services. Um, but as a co consumer, I mean, should I be bothered that, for instance, Facebook owns three big social media companies, Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp. Is there a problem with that, that if that would somehow be solved if those were all separate companies, they would, maybe they would compete, be competing each other. Maybe they would have, they would have different cybersecurity capabilities or, or I don't know exactly, but is, but is something like that a problem? You would look at it as a problem if indeed you had a large Instagram and a large Facebook and a large WhatsApp proposing to merge. But that's not where we were. What we had is a startup called Instagram that had a really cool idea. They had a much better picture sharing technology than Facebook did. And Facebook said, we can do something with that. We can make that a successful business. Similarly with WhatsApp. WhatsApp did not have a real revenue generating model. And Instagram did not have a great one at that either. And, but Facebook did. And so it was able to take those two businesses and turn them into a much more successful business. And that is something, as a bit of a, a digression, something that is often missed on people when they start worrying about mergers and acquisitions in this space. And that is there are basically three steps to making a successful company. One, you have to have the idea. Two, you have to turn that idea into a product. And then you have to turn it into a business, which has the marketing, the cash flow management, working with investors, legal issues, et cetera. It's very rare for some small startup to be able to get through all three of those phases. But a lot of people can get through the first two. And then it's optimal for consumers and everyone else for them to sell to someone who knows how to run the business. And that's effectively what happened with Instagram and Facebook, excuse me, Instagram and WhatsApp being purchased by Facebook. Facebook could run a business and these companies had not yet got to that point.
So under the proposed Platform Competition and Opportunity Act, you must prove that a company does not, quote, constitute nascent or potential competition, unquote, for a larger company to acquire it. That sounds to me like Facebook's purchase of Instagram, for instance, would not have been allowed if this particular act was already in force. Is that right? I think you're exactly right. In fact, it would never happen because they're saying, prove to me that this future will never occur. How do you do that? You, you can't prove that. So what it does is it cuts off the future value of startup businesses. And as I've talked with entrepreneurs and I've talked with venture capitalists, they're all telling me that there'll be just few, there'll be fewer startups under that kind of a scenario because that being purchased by someone who has a successful business model is a really good future for a lot of people who have bright ideas and can actually engineer a product, but don't want to become head of HR. They don't want to become uh, the head of marketing. You know, they don't want to become you know, someone who, who's in charge of large operations. Get, they need a future where they can take what they've created and sell it and then go create another future. In fact, to me, that, that scenario seems like is an example of something I've seen, uh, I think, in several different places on that, at that debate, where the people arguing uh, for more regulations seem to have a very loose grasp on, on the business world. They may understand antitrust law and the history of antitrust law and history of regulation, but they don't really know business. And another example is they will point to a, uh, an established company copying some feature that maybe an upstart is doing, and they'll say, well, that, there you go. Uh, that, that's non-competitive. Well, that ha- that's happened throughout business history where somebody comes up with a feature and someone else tries to duplicate it. Maybe they'll be successful. Oftentimes they're not successful because the company originally coming up with that feature uh, just does it a lot better. And I see that kind of thing seems to be pops up quite a bit where there just seems to be a, a, a lack of understanding of how business operates and has always operated. Yeah, I think you're exactly right on that. And there's you know, two things that I would, would point out to people. One is that if you look at the history of pretty much any innovation, you're going to find a lot of incremental steps along the way done by different people. And if you outlaw that, very few products are going to make it to market. You know, chances are anyone listening to this podcast, or at least a lot of people, are doing it on a computer with a graphics interface. Well, that was created, as far as I understand the history, by Xerox back in its parks lab. And Stephen Jobs saw it and said, I can do that a little bit better. Xerox wasn't going to take it to market. So he tried to and did a really nice job. And Microsoft saw that and said, oh, we can do that even better. And so they created Windows and they have competition between these two systems. And that's how we got to where we are today was people using other people's ideas. Android built off of the iPhone. That is, and, and, and the iPhone built off of things that Sony was doing. There's a lot of steps along the way. And if we say you're not allowed to do that, then we're going to kill a lot of innovations because no one's going to create things out of whole cloth. The, um, the other thing I think to, to keep in mind 
is that people tend to look at what someone else does and think it's very simple to understand. We see our own lives, we think they're really complicated. We look at somebody else's life and say, we know exactly what they should do. And there's a bit of hubris that goes on in antitrust where lawyers who've never run a business in their lives and never will, judges, same situation, economists, same situation, are trying to decide what business should look like and what businesses are actually viable. And it's actually the latter part that is maybe the most dangerous. Because if you study the history of businesses, a lot of great ideas fail because, because of a, a, a twist in the business that just didn't work. You look at the platform markets, there's a whole books written about all the platform markets that have failed. And the difference between those companies and Facebook are actually fairly small, but it's that small change that matters greatly. And that is oftentimes lost on the people who think they can design businesses and markets out of whole cloth. You know, we, um, you, sort of, you sort of referenced other companies in the past, which maybe at the time seemed uh, dominant, but didn't prove to be that way. I mean, at one point, Yahoo seemed to be the unassailable leader in, in, in search, and Nokia seemed to be the unassailable leader in cell phones, and MySpace, unassailable leader uh, in, in social media. All, none of those companies are really relevant anymore. And that's an example I certainly have pointed to saying, you know, what seems to be the case right now misses just how fluid uh, and revolutionary business can be and how dynamic but these companies have been big for a while now, and they're getting bigger. Is there something different now, something just quantitatively different about the big tech leaders today that is different than those other examples I just cited, and they need to be treated differently, that they have, they're so big, so much part of our lives, have so much money that they are not vulnerable in a way Yahoo was vulnerable or MySpace was? Well, there, there are three things I would keep in mind there. One is that as we've looked at the companies that have fallen along the wayside, they are all companies that were in a market area, a service area, that's a better term, that, uh, that some of today's tech companies are in. And today's tech companies just did it better. And that is what we would expect to see. We would expect to see someone starts a market and they create a few business, a few products in it, someone else creates them better, someone else creates them better. And eventually you get about as good as that market is, as that, excuse me, that product is going to get. That's how automobiles developed, uh, farm equipment, et cetera, all kind of developed that way. That's what we'd expect in this industry too. So that, um, that Google has lasted longer than Yahoo is, is not a concern. Um, what we actually do see in these companies is a very dynamic system. And it's one where it's fairly easy for them to be set up to fail. I was really struck by the book that George Gildner released a few years ago, um, Life After Google, where he talked about the fragility of their particular business models and how they're very narrowly focused and are missing a lot of value that could be created. And so it's about time for them to fall to something else. Uh, one of the things that he talks about 
is their, their heavy reliance upon artificial intelligence. But it's a very narrow view of artificial intelligence. So you'll hear people say, well, the reason that Facebook is so big, that Google is so big, is because they have data that nobody else has. But that's saying that this big data artificial intelligence is the way artificial intelligence will work in the future. And that's certainly not true. One thing I try to point out to people, if you look at the AlphaGo computer, artificial intelligence beat the world champion Go player. The AlphaGo computer burns about 170 kilowatts of electricity. The human mind playing Go consumes about one five, one fifty thousandth of that of a percent of that much electricity. So there's, there's a lot more to intelligence than what we're doing today. And these companies are tied up in today's artificial intelligence. And as soon as someone says, ah, I can do that better, then that opens the door to create the next ecosystem. When I've been looking at the politics of this issue, at least for a while, the, the, uh, the, sorry, the shorthand thing I, I would say is that folks on the left, Democrats, they view this as a, uh, a corporate power issue and an inequality issue and, and then and a, and a kind of a democracy issue. People on the right viewed it as a, uh, a speech issue, kind of a speech suppression issue. And therefore, it was going to be hard for any of these uh, any, any of these uh, legislative efforts to really come to fruition because even though maybe these big tech companies didn't have very many friends, uh, the enemy of my enemy you know, is my friend or maybe the, uh, the other way around, that there was just no way the two sides were going to come together to get anything done because their, their diagnosis, was just, diagnosis was just very different. Do you think the two sides will come together on this? Do you think the more severe remedies preventing big tech companies from acquiring other companies or actually splitting them up in some fashion could happen anytime soon in a reasonable scenario? In normal times, I would say it'd be unlikely, uh, but we're not in quite in normal times right now. We're in a time where Democrats control the House and have 50 votes in the Senate. And if you allow the vice president then to break the tie, Democrats can do kind of what they would like to do. In, in this particular situation. And so you might see legislation actually pass. You may then, Democrats may not need any Republicans at all. But the, the basic idea you were pointing out is that if you say, okay, both the left and the right have agreed to dislike tech. And so, you know, the, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. That holds until you start talking about what happens next. And in legislation, you have to talk about what happens next. And once a coalition says, all right, now how do we, once we deal with the bad guy, how then do we work? What then happens? What then, you know, how are, are the markets to play out? That's where significant disagreements start happening again. So I'm not sure we'll get much bipartisanship here because the, after we attack big tech world, they probably have fairly different views of that. What about uh, sort of on the regulatory side of things? where perhaps we're seeing a bit of a philosophical change, certainly uh, on the left, uh, where you can see the, maybe the, the FTC is more aggressive. We, we do see that if we, um, I don't know how, how the new chairman of the Federal Trade Commission 
will conduct herself. I don't know if she will take Lena Khan. She's written. Yes, um, yeah. Ms. Khan. I, I don't know if she'll take the things she's written and the things that she uh, worked on when she was on the House staff, if those now become her agenda. Sometimes people change their agendas when they get into do different roles in government. Um, but certainly the ideology of government should control these companies, should control these markets is present there. So if we were to see that, plus a federal communications commission with five commissioners, three of which would be Democrat and would tilt pretty far towards controlling as well, we would probably see a lot of political control of the content markets and the underlying networks as well. My guest today has been Mark Jameson. Mark, thanks for coming on the podcast. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. 